0: It is noon on the East Coast. It is 9 a.m. out on the West Coast as Broadcaster Hour goes coast-to-coast, really, for the first time. This is Roger Hoover with you from Greenville, South Carolina. We've got Kyle Crooks in Gainesville, Florida. And then in the middle of the screen, from Pasadena, California, we've got Joe Davis, television voice of the Dodgers. And, Joe, first of all, just thank you for being our first West Coast guest to join us live on Broadcaster Hour. How's yeah. Going on, man? yeah, happy
1: to do that. Everything's going well, guys. Thanks for having me.
0: Certainly glad you're here, and our first guest on this show was uh, one of our good friends, Adam Amin, and you guys were teammates long ago doing some high school volleyball in the state of Illinois, and you were teammates at ESPN. How thrilled are you guys to be teammates once again, now under the Fox umbrella?
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, we met first in 2009 when we were both doing independent baseball. Uh, he was in Gary with the Railcats. I was in Schaumburg with the Flyers, and we hit it off right away, and have been close since then and you know winding paths since we were both at ESPN but having them coming back to Fox it's a pretty cool thing I would just need some games to actually call <laughs>
2: so we can, we
1: can do our jobs at Fox.
2: How much did Adam reach out to you for advice because now he's the TV voice of the Bulls you are the TV voice of the Dodgers you're both working with the network so you're going to have similar schedules what kind of advice if at all did you have for Adam?
1: Yeah, I think that it's kind of been an ongoing thing since we met, Kyle, in 2009, where we've leaned on each other for whatever bit of advice you could ever possibly need in this business. We've gone to each other. Wayne Randazzo is another guy who um, we both, I know, lean on for advice on, on anything you can think of. When it comes to him taking on the Bulls job, it wasn't as much advice for him as it was just encouraging him and uh reassuring him that he was going to love it like when this became an option for him or started to look like it could be an option over the last couple of years that's what i tried to hammer home with him was like look i i know you, you you think you probably like it it'd be cool to add a team gig to the national stuff but let me assure you you are going to love it because i didn't know I, mean, I was doing the national stuff before i took on the dodger job and i wasn't going to take on a local job unless it was the right situation and Perfect situation. I wasn't looking for one. I took it and it exceeded expectations. And I knew, especially for Adam, with it being a team where he grew up, a fan of that team and the city where he grew up, it was going to be incredible for him if he took it. And I know he's
2: going to love every minute of it let's get to you and your career arc because you start at Beloit College playing football and also broadcasting. What was it like balancing those two worlds? And in a way, because I went to, I didn't go to a broadcast powerhouse. I also went to a division three school. And Joe, in a way, can't you kind of take a monopoly on all of the broadcast opportunities? Because there's not a ton of competition again on the air.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, I remember sitting down with my advisor the first couple of weeks that I was there the i all come early at Beloit uh, and sat down and you're not paired off with an advisor based on what major you're going into or uh, what you want to do. It's you're just, you're siphoned to whoever randomly they put you with. And mine was an old physics professor who was also a world-class trumpet player. So uh, not exactly a, a broadcast professional. We sit down and he's, he asked me, you know, so what is it you want to do? And I told him I want to be a play by play announcer. And he, looked at me kind of funny I guess like a world-class trumpet player psychologist, physicist or whatever this guy was would look at you and he said, huh I have no idea what that is <laughs> and I'm thinking, oh God, what have I done coming here like is this a disaster am I do I have no shot but exactly what you said Kyle, having a monopoly on the opportunities that there were there wound up being huge. And not just a monopoly on the opportunities that were existing, but the fact that it was a small school where you got to know your professors on a personal first-name basis and advisors. And and if there was something I wanted to do, I could find somebody to help me make it happen. So there were these existing things, few of them, but the existing things I had the monopoly on and then whatever I could dream up, I had somebody who would help me make it come to reality.
0: And you had those great opportunities in school, Joe, but then what were your first steps into the professional baseball world like? Were you sending tapes just all over the place and hoping to find an opportunity?
1: Yeah, so for Schaumburg, that was the summer before the Schaumburg job I mentioned where I met Adam. That was the summer before my last semester at Beloit. Uh, That was one where I remember seeing it on STAA, where we all see just about everything when it comes to those kinds of jobs and uh, applying for it. And Schaumburg was between geographically between Beloit and where I lived in Michigan. So I figured, Hey, you know, I'll, uh, I'll swing into the front office, swing into the stadium after I apply and introduce myself to the people. And so I did that and wound up getting that job and was lined up to take another job coming out of college in independent baseball affiliated with that same league. Actually, the owners of the Schaumburg Flyers were starting a new team, the Lake County Fielders, which soon after went under. <laughs> so thank God I wound up not taking that job. But I had that job lined up too. Figured why not apply to other jobs that I saw come open. A Montgomery job opens up. That's also on STAA. I figured might as well apply for it. And I got it. So I wish I could say that I had like that now, the, the story that so many guys have where it's, you're just waiting for that first break, waiting for an opportunity. I just got stupid lucky where the first one I applied for, the owners were stupid enough to take a chance on a kid who hadn't even graduated college yet. So I really lucked out when it came to that side of you know the, the grinding away that so many have to go
0: through. And that's where I first met you when you were in the voice of the Biscuits. I was with the Tennessee Smokies and then later the Jacksonville Suns. And uh, the Southern League can be quite a grind. You have 140 games in about 150 days, and you were able to do it for three seasons. Just what did you take the most from your Southern League time? You know,
1: it's just the the chance to do it every day. And it doesn't matter if there's nobody listening. Relatively nobody listening to these minor league games. For us, we love it, right? We, we love that we get to go to the park and be the voice of a team. It didn't matter one bit to me that it was minor league baseball and relatively there's nobody listening. It was amazing that I was getting to talk about baseball and get paid for it, and it was amazing that every single day, like you said, 140 times in 150 days, it was an opportunity to get on the air and practice and get better. And because nobody was listening, to make mistakes that weren't going to get you canned And to try things around as far as uh, excited levels and different verbs and different descriptors um, that you may not be able to get away with trying out. It was like a proving ground almost for myself uh, before I got into a more high exposure place where I couldn't do those kinds of things.
2: Joe, how much on a nightly basis were you listening back to to full games? You know, 140 games slate where, you know, most of it you're solo, so you're gonna make mistakes, and sometimes you don't hear those mistakes while you're doing them. How much on a nightly basis was it part of your regimen to to listen back and critique yourself?
1: Yeah, I really obsessed over it, and I guess I had the time to obsess over it because the Biscuits had me back in the office at like 9 a.m., even though these games are 7 p.m. each night. It's kind of what minor league baseball is. You work around the clock to not make much money. I didn't have a ton to do once I got there. I had game notes that I had to do. I didn't sell. Some broadcasters in the minor leagues have to sell. I didn't have to do that. So I had some time where I could go back and listen to the entire thing. And I would listen to just about every pitch of every single game and really try to embrace the idea of using every one of those games to get better. And I think self-critiquing is probably the best way to do that you can get critiques from other guys and you should that's a huge thing too but being hard on yourself and finding ways yourself each night to take a thing or two and be able to apply it the next night and that's the other great thing about baseball minor league baseball is that your next opportunity to improve is the next night as opposed to you do a football game and you only get 12 to 15 of them and you got to wait a week between them to uh, make these improvements. It's really cool that you get to apply whatever it is you want to fix so quickly.
2: How much would you advise for minor league broadcasters if they can to try and do demo games at major league stadiums? Because I know that's something you did, Roger does, uh, did with the Marlins. Yeah. Um, one getting that big league tape, Joe, but two also the relationships that you could make in a big league press box, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Now, you guys know networking is a huge part of the business, and then just. I'm kind of like an audio nerd, audio quality nerd. I, I think I was one of the first guys, Roger, in the Southern League to play around with a wireless microphone mm-hmm. by home plate to pick up the, the crack of the bat and everything because it really adds a lot. Even if you don't think it does, subconsciously, I think the listeners that are judging us, it makes a difference. And when those listeners are the decision makers, it makes a difference when you hear 40,000 people humming in the background as opposed to 400 on our minor league tape and the acoustics of a big league stadium and the sounds of big league names as opposed to names that people have never heard of, it just kind of helps you fake it, right? It helps you fake it till you make it in the minds of the listeners. Even if these guys, as many of them are, are smart enough to know that you're not a big league broadcaster. I think there's something subconsciously When they listen to the tape, when the the decision makers listen to the tape and hear you saying those big league names and they hear the 40,000 people roaring, it's a big deal and gives you a huge edge over somebody who may have a flawless minor league inning, but they're saying names we've never heard of. And there's an echo through through the small minor league stadium in the background instead of a big roar of the crowd.
0: While we're still talking about baseball on the radio, what's really most important to you when it comes to delivering an excellent baseball on the radio play-by-play?
1: Setting up the pitch, and the pitch being the priority. Um, there are I, I, I try to listen to as much tape as I can for young guys and, and guys that are just getting started, because so many people did that for me. Um, and one thing that I hear more often than I feel like I should is, the pitch not being the highest priority. It has to be everything. No story that we're going to tell or fact that we're going to give should take priority over the next pitch. And there are exceptions to that, right? When it's 10 to nothing in the eighth inning and the game's out of hand, it's okay to get a little lax with it. But otherwise, you need to be able to set up every single pitch to turn the listener's mind on to be ready for it. Here it is, and here's the result. But also... If you're caught in a story and then you hear the crack of the bat and the ball's put in play, you have no chance on a big play to be good at describing it, to be clean at describing it. You're going to have to speed up, to catch up, to call the action. Um, So I I think just fundamentally you need to make sure that the pitch takes priority because it is the most important thing. Our stories aren't. But then secondarily, if you want to be smooth in calling the play – You owe it to yourself to set up every single pitch.
0: And a lot of people, when they're in a minor league baseball broadcasting role, they always think they're just like the players. Oh, I'm just preparing for my next job to call big league baseball on the radio. But for you, it seemed like from day one in Montgomery, you were focused on casting a really wide net, including television. Just how big was that for you in your career?
1: Yeah. And I think you you said an important thing too. Like you you do need to focus on the day to day. And I tried to keep that in mind as I went through it, you know, doing the self critiquing and and trying to really use every day as an opportunity to get better and not get too caught up in what's next. So always keeping an eye on what's next. What can I do to get better? But what can I do right now as well? That said, yeah, I, I just, I, I wanted to do TV. I knew that i it wasn't that I wanted to do TV over radio. It's just I wanted to explore doing TV. And it's such a catch-22, and I'm sure this it's evolved at the entry level since I was in that stage. But at that point, so hard to get TV tape without having TV tape. And, you know, so I, I just tried to be as creative as I was to find opportunities, no opportunity too small at that point. And for guys that are starting out, that's a great way to look at it. No opportunity is too small. I was doing high school football webcasts for WSFA-12 in Montgomery to get some semblance of just video with my TV call over it to be able to put together some kind of reel. Uh, And as soon as I got to Alabama, I started reaching out to the people that produced the state championships on television and created uh, a network there that led to some tape there and um, same thing at ESPN, getting my first opportunities at ESPN3. Same thing at Comcast Sports Southeast, getting an opportunity to do some belt games for them. Just kind of having an eye on that being something I wanted to do and, and networking my way into kicking those doors down to get that first chance.
2: Joe, from a, a technical standpoint, what was the adjustment like for you? Because once you start getting TV reps, like most of us, we, we go from radio to television. Television, you have to pull back a lot more. Uh, what was that transition like for you, radio to television?
1: I think that the tendency for all of us, and I know it was for me, is to think a lot about that. Think a lot about the transition and not over-talking once we get to TV. And that's important. You don't want to over-talk and you don't want to do a radio call. But I know I was guilty of this, and I hear a lot of people making that transition guilty of this, almost like paralyzing yourself over that concept. And worrying too much. Am I doing a TV call here? Like, is it, am I talking too much? I hear a lot of guys. And again, this was me too, overthinking it. And then you just don't sound good. It sounds like somebody trying to do a TV call, like efforting to make the right captions and things like that. So yeah, it's important to be mindful of it and know that it's different. But beyond that, like, I think we're all, we get into this business, we're smart enough to know that there is a difference and and to embrace that idea. You got to be careful not to paralyze yourself over the difference in a TV and radio call. And I I don't, I guess I don't really have any tips on how you do that. Just be cognizant that you don't need to obsess over the difference, I think would be the way that I'd put it.
2: I guess it's just a feel thing that that comes about over time, right, Joe? And
1: and with anything, Kyle, it's like the more you do it, the better you're going to get it. And the more comfortable you're going to be with the difference.
2: I wanted to get to the story because I think it's a, a funny one of how you eventually landed at ESPN, how you had a random email critique while you were at Montgomery. And you just open your email. You see this long email and you're like, who the hell is this guy? But you look at the tag of the email and it's somebody who uh, works for ESPN. Uh, so how do once you get that email first, what's yeah. your reaction? And then how do you harbor that relationship and eventually land at ESPN?
1: Yeah. So this is like my first week in Montgomery where I got that email. Um, and my reaction changes. I'm reading through the email and thinking like who like you said, who the hell is this dude telling me how to do my job? You know, I've only been on the job for a week. Who is this guy? Then you get to the bottom of the email and you see SPN. And it's like, huh, okay. So his name's Dan Quinn. He wasn't anybody that like, was could hire me or cared to hire me or cared anything about talent acquisition from ESPN's perspective, but he was a big baseball fan and became a big Montgomery Biscuits fan. And I didn't look at it right away as how can this guy help me necessarily. We kind of became friends from him listening each night and back to the idea of not knowing how many people are listening when you're doing minor league games to know Dan Quinn was listening. It was pretty cool. And so you develop this relationship and uh, it didn't matter where it worked. I just knew that there, was, there were ears out there listening. Uh, after about a year, came up in conversation i think what had happened was he said he could help me book some cool guests for our pre-game show so i said yeah like I, okay that, that wasn't necessarily a priority for me at that point so in conversation i said i don't know um uh, that would be great but could you any chance you could introduce me to somebody at espnu or espn3 and just make a connection there and he said it was something along the lines of, like, surprise that I wanted that. But, of course, why didn't you ask earlier? Okay. So he made an introduction to Mike Moore in Charlotte. Uh, I was at ESPNU at the time. And, yeah, that that led to the next thing, which led to the next thing, and drove to Charlotte on the way to do a series at Carolina. And instead of riding the teen bus, sat down in front of in, in front of Mike and met a couple other people there as well. Soon after that, got a chance to do some of the streaming games on ESPN3 when it was in its real early stages after its launch. And I think from that, combined with some other things, it led to ESPNU, which led to Fox, which helped lead to the Dodger kick.
0: And we talked before about your opportunities at Beloit, uh, getting to be versatile and calling really anything you could, and that just continued throughout your career. Did that really help in your early days being full-time at ESPN, knowing that any assignment they could throw at you, you could handle?
1: Yeah, I think the more you can do, the better. And especially when you're trying to get, for me, trying to move from minor league baseball into a full-time TV package, it's going to be hard to make that move into a, real job a real package where it becomes your gig and you can leave minor league baseball all you can do is football or all you can do is baseball or even football baseball basketball there may not be enough games for you to make enough money for that to be your job but if you can also do volleyball if you can do soccer if you like the more you can do the better chance there is that you're going to have enough games and that you can do for them thereby provide enough value to them where you can be one of their guys so yeah I think that, you know, I talk about going and doing minor league baseball is the best thing you can do because of the number of reps. But I think that's the case, even if you don't consider yourself a baseball guy. Right. Like even if even if you don't see yourself in baseball long term, I think it's a great idea to go do that to get the number of reps. The other side of that is if you do consider yourself a baseball guy. Still find ways to do the other things. Don't limit yourself to just that because it is such a competitive industry. The more you can do can help separate you.
0: And even in those years, and then when you transition to Fox, how much was baseball still in the back of your mind as something you wanted to pursue?
1: Yeah, I, it, it's always been part of it. I, there, And there have been stages where I've said, I, you know, I want to be the voice of a baseball team. I want to be the voice of a major league team. But... Probably, you probably got to go back to college and high school to find the last time where I was that singularly focused on being a a major league baseball voice. It more became, I want to be a national voice. I want to do big games, football, basketball, baseball, all of them. Um, So again, it kind of became like, I was not looking for a, a gig with a team, a Dodger job. Uh, what, what turned out to be the Dodger job that just kind of came about and it was one of those that I couldn't say no to. Um, but yeah, it wasn't like I was seeking out a, a major league gig at that point.
2: Joe, what was that interview process like with the Dodgers? So you said earlier you weren't sure exactly yet if you took the job, it'd be the perfect fit. And turns out it was a great fit. But what was that interview process like when they first reach out to you or your agent that there is interest there?
1: It was weird, man. It was. It went from. Remember, I was in my closet in Michigan getting packed for a college football road trip. This should have been 2014, fall of 2014. And my agent called and said we talked about something else. And said, "By the way, what do you have for baseball tape right now?" I I don't know. Not a whole lot. Let me throw something together. Uh, What's going on? He said, "Well, the Dodgers are starting to talk about life after." Ben retires and your name came up. I said, wow, I have no idea how they even know who I am, but that's cute, right? Like, let's get him a There's no chances is me. Let's get him a tape. That was in the fall of 14, winter of 15, February or something like that. I was in Los Angeles for some Fox baseball meetings and decided, why don't I go put my face in front of these Dodger people that are making this decision? We hadn't talked since I sent them the tape. I didn't expect to hear from them, and I didn't. I go into the stadium and I sit down with a couple of the executives that are making the decision. Just introduce myself. Within like 30 seconds, Lon Rosen, who uh, is the decision maker in the whole thing, said, "Well, you're one of uh, four people we're considering for the job." And I was like, "Oh shit, okay, so this is real." <laughs> and again, at that point, I didn't know for sure that I wanted it because I wasn't going to take it if it meant leaving my national stuff. And so I said, "Yeah, of course I'm interested." And then. And went back and, and started to discuss things again with my wife and with my agent. And, um, we said, yeah, well, no reason not to pursue it. Like, let's, let's explore this. Another few months go by, we don't hear anything. And then in May or so, find out that they've offered the job to somebody. And if he takes it, he takes it. If not, it could be mine. So a month after that, they call and say, we want to hire Joe. And over the next few months, we went back and forth figuring out how to make both work, heading the Dodger job and continuing to do the national stuff. But it's a long way to say, again, kind of like I said at the beginning, it was a really weird process where I never really interviewed for the job. I never sat down beyond that first meeting where it was 15, 20 minutes and they basically told me that they were considering me. I never really sold myself like you normally do. You know, I, I didn't try to get the job necessarily. It just kind of happened. And and once I knew that I was on the radar, of course I, I became interested in it, but it wasn't like I applied with a resume and then had these interviews lined up and it, it just all kind of came together. Really a really an odd process for sure.
2: And once you accept the job, do you have a moment to yourself where you're sitting down and you're like, "Oh my God, Vince Scully is the voice of the Dodgers. I'm eventually going to be replacing not just a legend in baseball broadcasting, but a legend, almost a, kind of like an American legend, right? I mean, yeah. this is the biggest of big jobs. Do you have a moment to to sit down and just realize what this undertaking is going to be?
1: And through that, because I think because the process of accepting the job was so long, I thought about it a lot over those you know, three to four to six months or whatever it was, where it was looking more and more like I was going to take the job. Uh, but yeah, as far as pinch me moments where I, that kind of hits me, they still happen all the time. Four years after I took the job, Vin you know, called me the night before it was announced that I had gotten the job. That was a pinch me moment where I first talked to him. My first game was a pinch me moment. My first game at Dodger stadium and all those Pinch me moments are in that context of the chair that I'm sitting in, and who's been in that chair for so long. And before him, Red Barber, who's a Hall of Famer himself, and and just to think of that lineage, it's like it's it doesn't make sense to me. I kind of smack myself like, wait a minute, no, this can't be, this can't be real. Uh, and, and just you know, the like when you when you at the beginning, Roger said the voice of the Dodgers. It's like what, <laughs> what? yeah, still, I don't think that's ever going to wear
0: off. Well, that's certainly good. And for you as well, you know you know the lineage. you know the history of broadcasting, you know all the bios of Scully, Barbara, all of that. When you do have your first moments in that job, and even the year you were calling 50 to 60 games, how do you keep kind of an inner calm during all of this? And I'm sure that really helped you in some of your first big ESPN assignments as well, knowing you're on a national stage so early in your career. How do you have that inner calm that you deliver the perfect play-by-play you want to?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, bigger picture is making sure that I don't look at it as replacing Vin, because nobody's going to replace him. It sounds like a rehearsed line, but it's just true. Nobody's going to replace Ben. I think you're setting yourself up for failure if you go into it trying to. And I think you're setting yourself up for failure if you go into it thinking too much about it. For me, it's what made it so special. It's what made it a position I couldn't turn down. But I knew that if I was going to have a chance to succeed in it, I couldn't try to be him. I, I just had to kind of allow myself to be myself. So big picture, that's it. When you get into the the moments themselves within the games, how do you remain cool and deliver, like you said, the play-by-play that you want to? Actually, a tip Vin gave me because one of the things that I find so impressive about him is his wonderful ability in those big moments the never seem phased. And you guys know those big moments come and our hearts start beating faster, almost like we're in the moments as players. How do you slow that down? And he said he made the comparison to... To think of a a house that's set on fire in the middle of the night, and you've got to get your family and your pets out, and you know you're kind of in charge of making sure everybody gets out safely. If you let that heartbeat start going crazy while you're trying to do this, it may not be a pretty picture. You may not get the cat and the dog and the kids and your wife all out. But if you take a deep breath and just tell yourself to quiet down, tell your heart to slow down. Kind of got to be cool and calm. You're probably going to get out of that burning house just fine. And, um, you know, I, I often think about that when those moments come. And the good thing, one of the many good things about the Dodgers shop for me has been the three years that I've been the guy, they've been having these moments like this, like once a homestand, at least. You know, we're talking like 15, 20 moments a season where there's something special that they do. How do you get – good at calling big moments you got to have the big moments happen in front of you you got to be in the chair when they happen you can't replicate those so I've been so fortunate that they've given me a bunch of practice over a few seasons to slow my heart rate down to take a deep breath and and not put too much pressure on myself in each given moment Um, so yeah that's a that's a long answer to that question but I'm I've had a lot of practice with it just because the team's been so damn good
2: and
0: then I'm sure something else that's really helped you is you've been able to work with a partner in Oral Hershiser, and it seems like you guys have just had great chemistry from the start that's translated in your personal friendship with him. Just how big has he been in your success in L.A.?
1: Yeah, the two biggest things, I think, for this going okay have been, number one, the team has been good. The team had averaged 100 losses a season since I've been here. I might be run out of town by now, but they've won 100 games a year, and I'm delivering good news, so people like that. And the other big thing is Oral and my relationship with him and uh, what he's meant for me and my family. And uh, I, I can't imagine the job without him. Uh, I, can't, I, I know it would not be going like this without him. And you mentioned like the personal side of it. That's the biggest thing. I don't think that you can be really good together on the air if you aren't at least okay together off the air and we're beyond that you know we really are best buddies and i owe a ton to him i owe a, a big big part of how this is going to him
2: joe what's the biggest thing that you're trying to get out of your analyst say because you and her or her, her size, or you guys have a great relationship but say you're, you're working with somebody new at, at mm-hmm. fox when you're working with somebody for the first time how do you what, what's the key to trying prying something out of them that that is important for the broadcast mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's difficult and it's important. And with the national stuff, you often work with new people and different people all the time. I think that it's different for every guy. I think like coaches would tell you that about the players. You don't coach your entire team the same way. Each guy that you coach has a different way that they accept feedback and that that, you're going to get to them. Not that you're coaching the analysts, but in trying to make them their best, everybody's going to require, I think, different things. And how do you know what those things are when you're meeting these people and going to work with them? Well, I think it's important to develop this off the air before you go on the air. You find out about this person. You have a conversation with this person, whether it's, you know, I think, the more conversation you can have, the better, but sit down and have dinner with them or have breakfast with them and just develop a, a personal comfort that allows you to... Be comfortable chatting because that ultimately go on the air. That's what it is. That's the basis of it. That's the, the, the foundation that you've got to have. And then you start peeling back the more specific broadcast layers. What do you like in a play-by-play guy? You know, what do you, specifically for this game, where do you want to go? Where do you see this going? What do you want to be teed up on? What can I get you to early in the game to make you comfortable? You know, especially guys that are just starting out in the business. I really always want to know that. Where do you want to go early? So I can get them into a groove and kind of off and run and get the ball rolling on things so they get comfortable going into the game. But the the big thing is, I think, realizing that everybody's going to be a little bit different and finding a way to to make it comfortable based on what their preferences are.
2: In a way, do you need to have a similar relationship with producers and directors because you have that constant communication and you almost need to be on the same wavelength to make a broadcast work? Do do you make sure that you covet those relationships with producers and directors? I don't know how much they change throughout the year for you, especially with Fox, but I'm sure that's important, too.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the same thing, Where especially when I was just starting at ESPN. It was like a different producer and director and partner just about every game, especially getting into basketball season. It's all over the place. More consistency now, which is huge and i think that the importance of so like mike levy my producer for the dodgers he came in the same year i did so we've had four years together now and we can complete each other's thoughts same thing with with oral and me but mike levy is just as big a part of that where you don't even really almost becomes like a a part of your mind that you don't have to turn on you don't have to think about what's the producer going to do or say and that's not realistic that that happens, but when it does, it's magic. And what that shows you is that when you don't have that, it does require work. It does require more energy to make sure that those relationships are good. And it's the same thing. I think you nailed it, Kyle. It's the same thing as with the partner. You need to have on a personal, just human level, uh, comfort with the people that you're working with. And and that requires when you're meeting these people for the first time and working with them for the first time, the first few times going out of your way to make sure that that happens. That's not just going to come out of thin air that requires some effort and it requires making it a priority.
0: Getting into some of the preparation side of the business for a Fox college football game on a Saturday. Can you take us through your week of preparation and what's most important to you, especially what's most important to have on your board?
1: Yeah. Um, I say that I like to say that with football and basketball, if somebody gave me an assignment and said, You gotta do this game tonight, you've only got a few hours to get ready, I would spend my time almost exclusively, just given a few hours on memorizing names and numbers. Because if you're not A plus on delivering, you know, number 26's name is I'm looking at a board I have laying here, Sidney Jones. If I don't know that like I know your name is Roger. I'm not going to be at my best. I don't have a chance to be as as smooth as I can possibly be. So that's the biggest thing. And I'm doing that all week. Everybody has different ways of memorizing things. I like to write the numbers down left-hand column and quiz myself, kind of go down the page and and write the names. And then I'll do the same thing. I'll write the numbers. I'll do it again. And I have notebooks filled with names and numbers just as I try to memorize. And then um, I also try to memorize a headline for each player, at least the guys that are going to touch the ball, or on defense, just about everybody. So I'm not just nailing, you know, that I see your face and know you, Roger. But I'm also saying, you know, met him when I when, I, when he was with the Tennessee Smokies. You know, like a, a fact to introduce him with that can come without me looking down and searching to find it. I think to really be at your best, you've got to have those couple things: the immediate ID. And the, enough knowledge to immediately introduce. Give me something about this guy. So that's a priority. And for some guys, that's all there's going to be. I don't want to have all this prep and all these stories just for the sake of having these stories and having this prep and feeling comforted by having a bunch of fine print on my board. I think that I did that early on. And the problem with that is I feel like I'm sitting at a messy desk. You know, like you get you pour all this information and you get so much so much information to absorb during the week it's great but if you don't prioritize it for me i would get into the game be like okay holy crap i got all this stuff but where is it well I, i know i read a story about this guy but who which guy was it and i'd finish the game and i'd be like i didn't even talk about the most important thing for that guy i didn't even Say that the team was looking for its first championship in however many years. That's the important thing. So finding a way to take all this information and narrow it down, refine it, and have your headlines. That's for the individual players, but it's also for the teams. I spend the week having a, uh, putting together a, what I call a storyline chart, where I split the page in half, one team on one side, one team on the other, a headline for each, you know, looking for their first six-game winning streak in five years. On the other side, trying to move into first place in the division. Under that, maybe a headline about what their last game was, anything noteworthy from that. For football, I then do an offensive headline and a defensive headline and vice versa. And I'll introduce the groups with that. And that's something that I'll kind of go back to throughout the game as you know, to update those key headlines and key storylines coming in. And then you, know, you fill in the rest of the time with some of the minutia, some of the, the deep dive stories. But again, I'm not doing that on every single player. I'm reading everything I can find, but finding a way to sift through it and, and prioritize what I need to know and what the listener needs to know.
0: And you mentioned you had a board there. Could you hold that up to the camera so you yeah. can see what you're looking with, working with?
1: Yeah, I ran up to the attic and grabbed the first one <laughs> I could find. It's completely random. It's Washington and Arizona State, I think three years ago. Um, so I've got, Just a legal size folder. Arizona State offense, Washington defense, and vice versa. And I'll zoom it in so you can see a a little more closely what I've got.
2: Um,
1: Jake Browning, just to give you an example of what I was talking about with having a headline. Can you guys see that? We can. That That looks
0: good. Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, So – Started career four and five, 12 and one since mid-November last year. That, at that point, was kind of the story. He came in as a freshman and struggled Chris Peterson's first year. They're about 500, but now they've turned into the best program in the Pac-12 with what he's done since he kind of settled in. Um, Let's see, LeVon Coleman. So I've got it highlighted there in the extra bold font, nine yards of carry. So the first time LeVon Coleman touches the ball, I'm going to know it's LeVon Coleman, like I'm going to know my mom's name. I'm going to see 22. I'm going to know that's LeVon Coleman, and I'm going to know, how do I tell you who LeVon Coleman is? Beyond who he is, who is he, right? Here's LeVon Coleman, nine yards per carry. If I'm listening, whoa, okay, I know this dude's a big play threat. Same thing with Miles Gaskin. First carry of the day for Miles Gaskin. More than 1,000 yards on the season. That's enough to get me going. You see, that's highlighted in red, and I color code everything. But all I really highlight, you know, you flip it over, Arizona State defense, all I really highlight in yellow is that headline that I'm, I'm going to be prepared to introduce the player with. So something as simple as you see DJ Calhoun, the leading tackler. I now know who DJ Calhoun is more or less. And as the game goes on, I'm going to get deeper into it. You know, I've got more detailed stories on the guys as you as you dive in deeper into the board. But just the ability to uh, to be able to introduce who the guy is. And that's the individual player side of it. Um, I've got stat categories. I highlight good ones in yellow, bad ones in blue. A um, little sections here on, you know, the the group as a whole. This is the section I think that's probably evolved most for me through the years. That used to be filled with information about the unit. But I don't know, I I just found that that was like the messy desk syndrome. Do I need all that? I know it from reading it. Do I really need to have it all bogged down on here? Um, But again, it's still, I I haven't figured it out. I'm I'm still trying to figure it out, still evolving the way I do it all the time.
2: And when you want to also when you have your coaches meetings and things like that, is there are you putting that on your board? Is that a separate area uh, where you're putting all that extra information?
1: Yeah. So kind of the whole week, Kyle, for me goes into this board from the time that I get the two deeps on Sunday night or Monday morning or whenever I begin it. All my prep gets thrown into that board. And then the last thing I do is clean it up and prioritize. And that even in some cases involves deleting stuff that's just too much and that I I know I don't need. It's overkill. Um, So, yeah, I've got my computer out during the coaches meetings. Sometimes those are we'll do a conference call with a visiting team during the week, like Wednesday. A lot of times we'll do them in their hotel on Friday when we get to the site. Pretty much always do the home team on site Friday morning and I'm, I'm typing in notes, and it's still not real pretty yet as I'm typing those notes in. But I'm also typing those notes in through the week as I'm reading articles each day, as I'm reading the game notes, as I'm going through the media guide, and going back and reading all the long feature articles about guys from their, from their career. Uh, but yeah, right up until typically, say we have our last meeting Friday afternoon at 2 o'clock. Well, from 3 until dinner at 7, I'm really honing it all in, cleaning these boards up, exporting them to PDF, sending them off to get printed. And then the following morning before the game, uh, following afternoon, depending on what time of day the game is, I then do all this highlighting, which is kind of my last like, sit down, take a deep breath, really focus and, and start to get that game face on, get the mind in, in uh, correct position to be able to go through and highlight what's important
2: and when you meet your analyst at whatever city you're calling a game Mm -hmm. how much film are you watching any film with your analysts as they break down the x's and o's you kind of soak that in as well so you know that when you see something happen or they want to replay and they want to go in a certain direction you know what they've seen on tape and they've talked about before the game
1: yeah i I have I've, i've done a little bit of that there's not it's not part of my process necessarily because it's not been a process part of any of my analyst process, I don't think, where they want me there to like explain it, but I think it happens um, throughout the week. We discuss those things through email, you know. So currently, my partner is Brock Heward and he'll send me a clip or two that he finds as uh, important and, and noteworthy, and I know that he's going to be focused. I'll send that on Tuesday as he's breaking down films. It's kind of an ongoing conversation throughout the week.
0: And along those lines as well, getting ready for a broadcast Uh, with this football, you're always getting ready, you know, a week long preparation for a big game, a three hour, four hour broadcast. But in terms of your Dodgers work for baseball, it's every day. Sometimes there are quick turnarounds, but you're still putting on a three to four, sometimes even longer show in front of a huge audience. Just what's the production kind of meeting schedule like for the Dodgers day to day? How much are you guys doing that during the season? I, don't, I,
1: I should find out who said this because I use this all the time. But somebody said you prepare a week to call a football or basketball game. You prepare your whole life to call a baseball game. And it's kind of true, right? Like everything you've ever read and all the stories you've ever heard, there's a chance that that stuff comes up on a given night in baseball um, because it's every single day. I think that our, one of the great things about our producer, Mike Levy, is he understands that, getting too regimented in terms of meetings and, and schedules, it's going to kill you. It's going to drive you into the ground. It's not going to kill you. Right. I mean, we're, we're still talking about baseball. It's, it's, it's not hard. Um, but to be at your best and really have a smile on your face in some of those dog days, it's important. I think Mike realizes to not have too much of a regimented schedule. He'll swing into the booth. Three o'clock and say, Hey, I what do you think about this for the open tonight? We'll talk about this, right? And Oral and I probably say, yeah, that sounds great. Or maybe we have an idea. Why don't we do this instead? Good. And then you, because you do it so often, the stuff once you get into the game, and this goes back to the benefit of having a relationship with the producer that builds over the years, you kind of just know where one another's going in that prep. Um, and then individually, the prep for baseball for the Dodgers, a lot of it is living the season and the previous day having been there and called that that's a big part of it i also spend time each morning reading all the articles from the night before and just making sure that you know i'm kind of thinking along with the narratives that are out there the storylines that are out there making sure i'm not missing anything in my own mind and my own observations of the game um, and you know i think it's important to be around the cage most days not every day get down there and talk with the players and I'm not necessarily going down there like looking for a quote or looking to get something. You kind of let it happen. Again, playing the long game, if you're down there 162 days in a row with a notepad and a pen, you're going to be a nuisance, and I never want to be a nuisance to the guys I'm covering. So I let those relationships develop and let the let the information come through on a, on a semi-regular basis through that route. Um, I do starting pitchers for each night's game, really do a lot of work on that. I typically do that. When I get home for the next day, so seven o'clock game at Dodger Stadium, get back home at 11 o'clock that night, spend an hour on the next day's starting pitchers and have those ready to go. So the following day when I wake up, I'm more focused on the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, and that's where I was going to go next. Uh, for you, you know, we all, when we started in the minor leagues, everybody had the Bob Carpenter scorebook. Everyone was really focused on making that book as shine as much as it could be. I know I got in that trap a lot early on, but uh, for you, I know now you basically just keep score with what's printed out for the media, and then a lot yep. of your news and notes is all in your OneNote. Can you kind of take us through what's important yeah. you have in OneNote?
1: Yeah, I have everything in OneNote. It's like my baseball brain in digital form. Um, I'm assured that so you, like, you can't back the thing up apparently, but I'm assured it's fine up in the cloud. My God, it better be because if that thing <laughs> goes, I might quit. Um, so you're right. I, I started scoring I had a score book. My first as as recently as my first year doing Dodger games, but starting in 17, uh, or actually late in 16, I gave it a try. I went to just the score sheet that's produced in, as as standard across every major league press box. And its I kind of looked at it as the first few games, almost like jumping in the pool without floaties for the first time. Like, oh, God, I don't know if I'm going to be able to swim. I might need these floaties to swim. But you get in, you're like, wait a minute. I'm good, and this is comfortable. I don't need these. So what I found is I spend so much time reading this stuff. I spend so much time preparing I don't need every little detail bogged down on my scorecard. And this freed me up. It freed me up just mentally having a clean sheet in front of me and allowing my brain to work as opposed to being a prisoner to what's on my score sheet and on my scorebook. And it freed me up just from a, a time budgeting standpoint. There's a lot of busy work that goes into filling those score sheets out. And so when I'm, instead of spending an hour, writing all the names and numbers in there, I'm spending an hour talking to players and coaches. I'm spending time talking to the manager, talking to the other broadcasters, stuff that would be devoted to filling out that scorebook if I hadn't made the decision to go to this process.
2: Joe, what, what percentage of what makes the air do you think is from those conversations day of? Because when you're a team announcer in baseball, you're there every day, and sometimes it can be hard, maybe not for the Dodgers, but to find certain storylines to keep it fresh. So that's a way to keep it fresh, right? Continue to have those conversations day of.
1: Yeah, exactly. Oral and I always say, because there are some days we're like, oh, are we going down today? I don't know. You know, we're, we're tired. Are we really going to go down to batting practice? We're always glad when we do. We always come back saying, you know what, that's the best thing we got for tonight. That five-minute conversation we just had with Max muncie that's the best stuff we're going to have. Without fail, that, that winds up being the case. When you invest that time to go learn, the, get the intel down by the cage or in the manager's office, it's always worth it. I'm always, I mentioned this a minute ago, cognizant of not being a nuisance. Probably, I probably lean too far towards that i don't want to get in the guy's ways i don't i don't want to be somebody who's like wow what do you need i probably worry too much about that and could be more aggressive getting the getting the extra information because that's our job right like we're we're a liaison between we have that access that the fans at home don't and especially now with how much great stuff there is on the internet fan graphs and we all know about Baseball Reference and Baseball Savant and all these websites where anybody can access the numbers and the facts. What they can't do is they can't walk up to Cody Bellinger at the cage and ask him how his swing's feeling. So the more of that that I can do, the better. I think that the more that I, I'm able to bring something of value if, I, if I'm doing those things
2: transitioning a little bit what's the one thing or maybe a few things that you see young broadcasters in terms of mistakes that they make when you get tv tapes or radio tapes what's something that stands out to you that uh you tend to see or hear often
1: i think a couple things that i mentioned earlier would go into that category not prioritizing the pitch on baseball radio specifically not setting up a chance that the next pitch could be the one any pitch could be the one not, not taking that seriously enough. Um, overthinking the difference between TV and radio. When, when guys make the transition TV, that's probably something. Um, I think that we all go through the expiration of where we belong. Sighted wise. Some guys are better, really cut loose. Some guys are better flatline. I don't know if it's a mistake is for me, like, you can find tapes in Montgomery on a Monday night, I'm screaming my ass off. On a Tuesday night, I'm like not getting excited at all because I'm just exploring where I belong. So I don't know if that's a mistake as much as it is I see that a lot. I think that's a good thing. Like Explore where you belong. Don't be afraid to really get excited. Don't be afraid to see if you may be right here. Explore that range and it's going to take years to find it. Um, so, again, I don't want to call that a mistake, but that's definitely something that I see a lot that exploration going on in, in terms of excited levels.
0: And where have you really found a comfort level? Because there are so many great Dodger moments that have happened. You've been able to really sum up really well. I think a lot of people look when you said this team or Babe Ryu, when he hit it, when Hengen Ryu hit his home run, just how do you think about those moments? And it just seems like, again, it's perfectly captioned to the audience, but as you're delivering those calls, what's going through your mind?
1: I appreciate you saying that. I think that for me, I'm not, Smart enough to have the moment happen and just bam, captioned right. And so, but also I'm, I'm I'm smart enough to know you can't script that stuff because we don't know exactly what the moment's going to be. What we do know typically is that there's a chance there's a moment coming soon. You know, you can go move into the bottom of the ninth inning and see they're down two runs and they got this guy, this guy, and this guy coming up. There's a chance, and with the Dodgers, there's a pretty good chance they're going to do something special. What would it mean if they did? So it's more than just if they go into the ninth inning down two and wind up winning by one. It's more than line drive, base hit, center field, the Dodgers win. It's not really capturing. I guess that's captioning, but is that really capturing what the moment is? So I try to anticipate. Not script, because it's going to sound scripted. I've done that too. I think we've all probably tried that, and it always sounds scripted. But I try to what wrap my mind around as I'm anticipating a moment could be here. coming here.
2: What, what game is this? What does this mean? mean there was a stretch last year they three straight rookie walk off home runs, three
1: games in a row. A different rookie hit a walk off. They had five or six consecutive home games walk off wins a couple of years ago they didn't take over first place until late August when they you know came from behind to take first over from the Diamondbacks all that context is important to consider as you anticipate the moment coming but again for me I can't just have the moment happen and then come up with an appropriate fitting caption
0: This will be the last one for me. We'll have uh, Kyle have one more as well. But uh, for you, you get to be the uh, television voice of a team, and people are so loyal listening to you and Oral every night. Then you get to October, and the stakes are at their highest, and it's a national announcer. Now you've gotten to be on the other side of that, calling the Division Series, also the ALCS uh, last year as well. Just how do you approach those October assignments knowing that the audience you have has been very loyal to their guys all season long, and now it's you coming in as the big, bad national announcer, I guess.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess it's helpful, Roger, that I do have both perspectives. So I do see what makes a, a team and its announcers with the relationship special. I do have that perspective. And so I understand when I go in and people hate me. I get it, right? Like I'm not there every day living and dying with them. So I completely get it. Not because of that, but with that partially in mind, I really obsess over getting things right and spending a lot of time knowing the story of the season for the team and for the individual players. So when I go in to do a national postseason series like that, you can't get, like, when you get to that point, first of all, I don't think the fun deep dive stories are appropriate. If I'm telling you about a guy's tough upbringing, it feels a little odd when, like, the whole season is at stake at that point. It's more about the next pitch, more than ever before. You get into the postseason; it's about the next pitch. It's about the here and the now, this game in particular. So... I spend a lot of time, almost all the time, figuring out what the, what is the story of this guy's season. And maybe a little more than that, what is the story of their career? Um, but you've got to nail that stuff. When you come in as a national guy, you're delivering it to an audience who follows And the same thing applies, I think, in college football or NFL. These fans follow these teams like it's their job, a lot of them. They spend a lot of time reading message boards and reading all the articles. You've got to come in with one week of preparation and not just, you know, pass their test. You got to teach them something. If you're doing their job, you got to deliver some stuff that they don't know. And so I really obsess over making sure that I nail the facts when it comes to each individual guy and the teams that I'm covering.
2: Final one from me, Joe, uh, as you're preparing for baseball, whenever baseball comes, uh, according to Rob Manfred, there, there should be baseball at some point. Um, are you preparing for the fact of calling games off of televisions and, and a remote studio and, and no fans and the prospect of all that? Just how odd this season's going to be, especially from a broadcasting perspective?
1: Yeah, you're right. It's going to be weird. Even the games where we're there, they're going to be able to hear us. The players are gonna be able to hear
0: us. In Southern empty League's great stadiums. preparation for that.
1: Yeah, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Joe Davis Stadium in Huntsville, I think. It's like we laugh at it, but it's that's not great that they can hear what we're saying. I, I know that that's going to get into my head a little bit, right? Like We're all human. We don't want to sit there and say bad things even if they're true about somebody who's sitting right there and can listen to us but a lot of times we are when we're broadcast we're giving the facts, so they're not doing well right now if i'm sitting there saying well mookie betts is old for his last 15 that's the that's the fact that i gotta give you but if he could hear that that sucks <laughs> right like it's gonna be that's gonna be weirder and more difficult i think than than we're even really wrapping our minds around and then the other part of that is calling games off monitors. I've never called baseball off monitors, but I don't think it's going to be easy. I've talked to John Chambi a little bit about it. He's done a bunch of KBO games like that and he confirmed a lot of the fears I have. How do you with conviction call a ball off of the bat when you're trying to find it on a monitor and you're basically at the you you have to trust the cameraman that he tracks you. You can't really watch the fielder to take you to the ball like you would in person. So there's going to be all kinds of unique challenges to this season. But anytime I start to get worked up about that, I just try to quickly remind myself it's better than nothing. Yeah, I think that this year is going to be unlike any other for the players, for the fans, for the coaches and managers, for us too. It is what it is. I think there's an amount of grace coming from the fans right now or there at least was before these negotiations went how they were, anything is going to be better than nothing. And I think we have to kind of look at it like that from our perspective to call in the games.
2: Uh, I think Gary Thorne had a situation like that a couple of years ago when they play in that empty stadium. Was, I think it was Orioles White Sox where Adam Jones looked up and said, can you shut up please or something, <laughs> something along those lines. I think it's out there somewhere, but yeah, it is a possibility.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and real quickly, when you're calling a Dodger game, how much are you watching the pitch on the monitor? And then when you see the action, do you immediately look to the field or do you stay locked in on the monitor?
1: Yeah, so Oral and I have our, our setup. It'd be kind of hard to describe to you. See if I can do it with these couple posters I have here. We have our monitors set up. It's going to be really hard from this angle, but like a V. Nice so I, he's to my right, field's down here. I have my monitor right here. He has his monitor right here, so we kind of look at each other and at the monitors at the same time. Most people, the standard is I'm here with my monitor here. Oral is here with his monitor here. Well, how are you having a conversation if you're back-to-back? So, yeah, we we have our monitors in the middle, so we're kind of facing each other to begin with. I watch the pitch on the monitor always, is how I mean when you're sitting at home, you can tell it's a fastball on the outside corner. If you're sitting anywhere in the stadium, you're guessing on that stuff. So, I want to make sure that I have the same information the fan does. I'm going to get exposed if I'm trying to call pitches like that and con- consistently get that right. I call the pitch off the monitor, and as soon as the ball is put in play, my eyes go from here up to here to track the ball in play. Now, how that's going to work when I got monitors all over the place in a dark studio we'll see could be ugly but we're going to give it a shot
0: well we certainly look forward to the day that comes i think everyone's just ready for baseball ready for sports to come back and i know you are as well but joe we could talk to you for another three or four hours about all this but thank you for all of your insights and your time today this has really been a treat thank you so much man
1: thank you for having me guys my favorite thing nerding out about broadcasting so thanks for letting me do it
0: we love it That is Joe Davis of the Dodgers and Fox Sports. Thank you again for watching this week's edition of Broadcaster Hour.